Welcome to JFK in the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 149, and it's part two of a two-part episode related to Johnny Roselli and the CIA mafia plots to kill Castro, those that took place in the context of the Bay of Pigs invasion. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 149 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. After that news, perhaps it should not have been a surprise to anyone that the Castro plot moved slowly, and that was much to the distress of the CIA. Originally, the planning anticipated that Fidel would be eliminated by late November or at latest by Christmas. With the secret invasion by the exiles to occur shortly after the assassination. Soon it was pretty clear to the CIA that this was not something that was going to happen on a scheduled basis, particularly with the mob characters that were involved. Traficante was the leading mafia character in this play as it relates to Cuba, and that was natural. As I mentioned, he spoke fluent Spanish, and he was, in effect, a second-generation Cuban. He had the deepest contacts, and so Joe the Courier was center stage. And yet he kept coming up with excuse after excuse as to why one potential assassin after another was not going to be optimal or had perhaps backed out. Months went by, and with everyone getting antsy, including the CIA, Roselli would begin to talk amongst other connections that they had within the Cuban exile community. There was a lot of Latin bravado in Miami at that moment. And there were a lot of men who wanted to kill Castro. But when it came right down to it, there were very few that had the real ability to make it happen. Giancana was not the kind of guy that was just going to relocate for months at a time to Miami. And so eventually he made his way back to Chicago to continue dealing with the bulk of his own affairs there. And Mayhew went back to Washington. To some extent, to deal with all the issues that had come about as a result of the wiretap mess in Las Vegas. 
J. Edgar Hoover wouldn't let up. Mayhew would be questioned by the FBI, and he would give them an effective big hint. But he wouldn't say exactly what that meant. He did say he was involved in important secret government business, and he referred them to Sheffield Edwards at the Central Intelligence Agency. Roselli would fly back to L.A. and Vegas because he too had business to attend to, and they all ended 1960 in a state of confusion about whether this mission was even possible. The pressure was on Roselli, and this was as big as you get. This was like being in the Super Bowl of exile events, and he was not winning. A lot happened in the next couple of months, and some of it we've already talked about, but just briefly, I'll mention that in late December, Castro made a speech, and in a very public way, he announced that Alan Dulles and the CIA had hatched a plan against Cuba to create a fictitious incident on Cuban territory or near the shores, and it would be such an incident that would give pretext to military intervention by the imperialist forces. It was this kind of exacerbatory response from Castro that prompted Eisenhower to go ahead and break off U.S. government diplomatic relations with Cuba in early January. There is no doubt that the reckoning was getting close. And Roselli knew that the troops and the invasion force were getting prepared. And, of course, it was the decision of the Eisenhower administration to pass the whole thing off to the Kennedys and let them take the political risk and opportunity of gain. Somehow, it must have been pretty clear to Eisenhower that the downside of this cockamamie scheme to invade using the CIA, well, it had more downside than upside. JFK would be sworn in on January 20th. Back in Washington, the CIA continued with its narrative that they had found their man and that he would be successful in the assassination. And while the new President Kennedy had been apprised of the invasion plans, he was unaware at this moment of the plot to kill Castro. The assassination planning group, that is, Roselli, Giancana, and Traficante, would come together again in March down in Miami Beach. Traficante had finally found the killer, and Traficante wanted Roselli to meet this new connection, this direct contact with the assassin-to-be. He was a Cuban that did not speak English, and so Traficante would serve as the interpreter. They had settled back on the idea that they would poison Fidel, and this man was to deliver the deadly potion that was developed by the Technical Services Division, or TSD of the CIA. He would deliver it somewhere in Havana to an unnamed co-conspirator that was either a cook or a servant who would have access to Fidel's food and drink. Traficante would state that the fee was a $10,000 deposit that would count toward a full $250,000 payment that would be due upon Castro's death as a result of this plot. They came to Miami at a good time, and that was during the two biggest social events of the season. The heavyweight title fight between champion Floyd Patterson and Ingmar Johansson was at the convention center on March 13th, and their friend Frank Sinatra was in town to make an extended appearance at the supper club inside the Fountain Blue Hotel, which was where they were staying. These were big events for Miami, and it was really tough to get a hotel anywhere. 
But these were the kind of men who could get the best of everything whenever they wanted. She and Kana ended up renting two large suites at the Fountain Blue, and Sinatra was just above him in the penthouse. It was an absolutely raucous scene. All these shady figures and other marginal characters, including hookers from the Poodle Lounge, right beside the constant rounds of hotel workers that were delivering room service throughout their time there. And all of that was going on while several FBI agents were downstairs at the Fountain Blue, watching and keeping an eye on both Roselli and Giancana. <laughs> it was a crazy venue to command a highly secret government operation to kill Castro. But as I say all the time and so many times on this podcast, the truth is more interesting than fiction. It was time for Mayhew to join them as well, and Mayhew flew down from Washington with one of his associates. It was a man named Joe Scheiman. He was a 54-year-old inspector in the Detective Bureau of the Washington, D.C. Police Department. Scheiman had served as a special agent with the White House and other D.C. institutions, and he had run security for presidents and world leaders, and for many years he had moonlighted as a private investigator on many of Mayhew's more questionable dark projects. Scheiman also knew Roselli as he had met him a while back in Vegas, years ago actually, when they were working the Milton Berle case. He had accompanied Mayhew on the trip, but Mayhew hadn't described exactly why they were going down. When Mayhew and Scheiman arrived, they drove straight to the Fountain Blue and made their way up to Roselli's room. When they got there, Giancana was in a meeting with Vegas executive Lou Letterer, and they were discussing something related to casinos in Montego Bay. Roselli was there too. These gentlemen were dismissed, and now it was just the men dealing with the Castro circumstance. Roselli would get everyone a drink, and they would enjoy some of the caviar that had been flown in daily by Giancana. Caviar was a particular delight that Giancana liked to partake in. At that moment, Giancana was multitasking as Frank Sinatra had sent down some tapes of his latest recordings, asking Momo to listen to them and give some feedback. He was always interested to see if he liked the music. It was Sinatra's way of fawning over Giancana, but in reality, Giancana just sort of humored him about it. He thought it was a pain in the ass. Scheiman had been lured to the meeting to some extent under false pretenses, and as various conversations began to occur, some of them more quietly and in the reaches of the room, Scheiman came to understand that this was a discussion about an assassination attempt on someone. And because he was still a member of law enforcement, he made it clear almost immediately to Mayhew and Roselli that he had no interest in such a project. But at that moment, they would fully brief him on what was happening, and eventually he would have greater context and accept the invitation to be involved. As they all began to talk more openly about what was happening, Roselli would indicate that the package that was due from the Technical Services Division of the CIA had finally arrived. It was a neurotoxin. The history of this meeting does not clearly establish whether the poison was in pill form or liquid form, but either way, it was the latest and the deadliest formula. It was the creation of a man named Cornelius Roosevelt, who actually happened to be the grandson of President Teddy Roosevelt. The assassin would dose Castro's food or drink with this poison. 
and it was said that after ingesting even a drop or two, that Fidel would become ill, and he would then remain ill for several days, and then he would die. Nothing would happen suddenly, and so another key element of this approach was that there would be no trace of the toxin in his system. And so, if Fidel's body underwent an autopsy, it would not show that such a neurotoxin had killed him. In the middle of this conversation, Sinatra would call Giancana again. And then, after a brief conversation, Giancana would get off the phone and declare to everyone in the room that it was important not to let Sinatra come down and join because he had a big mouth. And they reminded everybody of what he had done in Cuba in 1946 and how shooting his mouth off had doomed Luciano at the Havana Conference. This wasn't just situational as Giancana was growing tired of Sinatra. Giancana was still smarting over the fact that Sinatra was a go-between and in many ways about what they were trying to negotiate with the Kennedys related to Bobby's uninvolvement. Sinatra had not warned them about Kennedy's appointment to the U.S. Attorney General's position, and that was a sign that he was perhaps less connected than what he sometimes represented. Frank's access to Jack was overstated, and this rising tide of negativity within the small mafioso group was not yet at a boiling point, and not yet at a point where Sinatra recognized it. Sinatra had been working hard at the club, and he finally had a night off, and it was that night that he was taking a big group of about a dozen people out on the town to have dinner, and then to see the Jimmy Durante show at the Deauville. And then they were all going to bar hop until the wee hours. They would eventually go with him after the business of Castro's assassination was dealt with in the meeting. And that Roselli was not without a date. Somehow he had managed to commandeer a doctor's wife for the evening to go with him. And to look good, he even borrowed a beautiful bejeweled ring from Giancana. Giancana would go ahead and wear in its place a ring that Sinatra had given him. <laughs> Later that evening, when they were out to dinner, Sinatra would notice that Giancana was wearing that same ring, and he would get all giddy about it. And of course, the other men at the table with Giancana would begin to kid Giancana and Sinatra. One of them would say to the two of them, are you guys queer for each other? What man gives another man a ring? <laughs> they all laughed, and Sinatra would turn around and hurry back to his own table. That night, the poison was handed off to the courier that would take it to Cuba. Roselli and the rest of the Miami crew were having a nightcap in the Boom Boom Room at the Fountain Blue. With him was the package of deadly poison, and it was not necessarily the best place, given all the things that can go on in a bar. And finally, the courier came, and he was a small, dark-skinned man in tattered clothes, and he fit in well with so many of the other Cuban refugees and hustlers who now populated the streets of Miami. He would walk outside and take care of the business with him, and minutes later, the poison was on its way to Havana. Later in the week, newspapers would carry a story that Castro was sick, and that excited everybody in the assassination team as they thought, in fact, the deed had been done, and the folks back in Washington at the CIA headquarters were also pacing the floors. This was an absolutely critical part of the entire operation. After all, 
they had invested $40 million or maybe even more in an invasion. And this was the critical element driving its success. And yet the secret nature of the invasion was deteriorating rapidly. And it seemed like everyone knew about it. A few days later, Castro would get better. And it would confirm that the poison had not been sprinkled on any of his food or drink. All of this created a real sense of urgency to try again and the CIA was getting more demonstrative with this small group about who to use. And this time, they brought to bear a man's name, Juan Orta, who was a longtime Cuban political activist and a Castro supporter in the new government. Castro had appointed him as his own personal secretary. And as a result of taking that position, it put him physically every day in a small anteroom outside of Fidel's office. And of course, he was then a man who saw Fidel every day. The CIA was of the opinion that Orta had become disenchanted with Castro's ruthless style of governing, and as a result, he had begun to enter into very discreet and secret dialogues with the United States. Orta was looking to help, as he too felt that there needed to be a more moderate government in place in Cuba. While the CIA brought the name of this man to Roselian Mayhew, Chef Field Edwards and his cohorts were not in a position to dive in themselves. And so it was still left to Mayhew and Roselli to figure the next part of this out. In the meantime, they had received a new deadly potion, and this time it was definitely in the form of pills, and they were hidden inside a customized pencil. And the package containing the poison would be delivered to another Traficante go-between. Just a few days later, they would get the message that the pills were in Juan Ortiz's hands. Unfortunately, after that point, the communication would be silent. And by early April, Roselli had to make the assumption that Ortiz was either too scared to do it or he was already dead. We've now subsequently learned after the fact that Castro had learned of his secretary's alienation, and Ortiz, as a result, had fled. He had gone underground, taking refuge in the Mexican embassy, where he would then hide for the next five years. In these later stages, they would also bring one more important person into the fold, into these plots, and his name was Anthony Tony Verona. Tony Verona was a powerful force within the Cuban revolutionary movement, having been recently elected as president of the newly reconstituted exile government, which was now to be named the CRC, or Cuban Revolutionary Council. Years later, it would be confirmed through CIA documents that Giancana's mafia organization, including four underworld figures in Chicago right around that time, supplied Verona with payments totaling about $200,000, which are, in current terms, probably worth more than a million. And it was a payoff to bring him into the plot to kill Castro. There were additional CIA documents that indicate that he was used as a go-between in an attempt to bring Roland Massferrer back into the fold. Massferrer had been a murderous thug that had supported Batista, and the Kennedy administration wanted no part of him to be involved. But he was a friend of the mafia, and he would be useful in the plot to overthrow Castro. <laughs> what a web. Well, besides all of this, it was said that Verona may have also failed to give an order 
that was associated with the latest assassination attempt, and that contributed to its failure. They had gotten to the end of the road, and these mobsters had crapped out. The invasion could no longer wait, and it went forward. And on April 15th, Brigade 2506 was on its way to Cuba and planes overhead that would begin to destroy the Cuban Air Force. But all of this was beginning with Castro still alive and with the revolution still roaring. As we all know, the invasion failed. And of course, in the end, Roselli would wonder about his own involvement and contribution in the mess that was the Bay of Pigs. If they had killed Castro, would it have made a difference, he wondered? It was pretty clear to everyone that that was likely the case. There was no doubt that the original plan to eliminate Castro before the invasion would have made a difference, and Roselli really did take the job for the good of the country, and not just because it might have brought ancillary benefits to him. But now, the FBI was on his tail, and there were other parts of the government that were coming after him as well. There is no doubt that letting Giancana in on the mission had created a level of chaos around it, particularly with the issue on the wiretapping. While Roselli certainly had reservations about Giancana's involvement, in retrospect, he would conclude that Traficante was, in a sense, even worse, and that he had lied to them all the way through. Roselli, in the most tentative of the dark moments afterward, would wonder if the rumors that had been floating around Miami were true about Traficante. And those rumors were fantastic in nature. Was he potentially a Castro spy? One that had bartered his way out of prison with the promise to betray the Cuban exiles wherever he had a chance? And, of course, this was the ultimate payback to Fidel. And, of course, there was Mayhew's fumbling of the wiretap, which created an incredible distraction. And no doubt, that also contributed. But on that note, the CIA's Sheffield Edwards did attempt to stop some of the bleeding, actually interjecting with J. Edgar Hoover and requesting that Hoover not pursue the wiretap prosecution on the grounds of national security. But in those moments... Hoover was not a CIA fan, as we all know, and when Edwards asked this question of Hoover, Hoover would just look back at him and say, on what grounds should I not pursue it? Sarcastically, he would say, was Las Vegas not still a part of the United States? He would remind his CIA cohorts that the agency was not licensed for internal security operations within the borders of the U.S., Edwards really didn't understand the animal that he was dealing with as he engaged with J. Edgar Hoover. And attempting to secure his leniency, he actually admitted to Hoover that they had been collaborating with members of organized crime in a top-secret operation against the Cuban government. And then, of course, the next thing that happened was probably more relevant and important and certainly more impactful to Hoover's next move. Edwards would admit that the Attorney General, Robert Kennedy, was aware of it, although that's actually questionable. And it was based on the idea that there was likely a passing of the information first from Richard Bissell to Alan Dulles and then from Alan Dulles to Robert Kennedy. Again, history will tell us that that was probably unlikely at that moment. 
But regardless, it is pretty clear that Alan Dulles knew the details, perhaps not the names of the individuals, but he knew the outline of the plan. We know this because Richard Bissell and Sheffield Edwards briefed both the director and his Deputy General Charles Cabell, and their testimony later would indicate that after leaving the meeting, they were sure that Dulles and Cabell knew exactly what was going on. Hoover, in his clever way, demanded of Edwards that he give him a written statement to all that he had just articulated, especially to include the line about Robert Kennedy's involvement. What Sheffield had just done, instead of quelling the circumstance, was to throw gasoline on the fire, and it created quite a problem for Bobby Kennedy. He had just given J. Edgar Hoover an incredible and powerful potential element of blackmail. You see, Robert Kennedy had little of that kind of thing for Hoover to latch on to, and in the end, the FBI would delay the prosecution of Mayhew. But the investigation went on, and it was distracting. And the Pandora's box had been opened, and Hoover wanted to know much more about this CIA collaboration with gangsters. He wanted to understand it more thoroughly before he was willing to commit to making it disappear. That led to some pretty interesting things that happened right after the Bay of Pigs. One day in Beverly Hills, when Roselli made his way back to California and he was on his way into Drucker's Hairdressers for Men on Wilshire, that was where Roselli would go for his weekly haircut, well, two men in suits followed him into the building. These were not guys who looked like they might be customers at the hairdressers. Sarcastically, Roselli thought that they looked like they might even cut their own hair. They also looked like they might be from the FBI. And that's what they said. But they didn't flash any identification. And they were nice enough. And they were simply at the beginning asking Roselli just a few questions. But it was clear they were all directly related to Bob Mayhew and the wiretap. And they wanted to know whether Roselli and Mayhew were particularly paying back a favor to Giancana. As the questioning intensified, Johnny would definitely tell them nothing and point them politely to the end of the conversation, letting them know that he didn't care to answer any more of their questions. It was pretty clear at this point, to him anyway, that Mayhew was talking. He would call Mayhew quickly, and Mayhew would tell him it wasn't quite that simple, that they had connected Roselli with all of this by tracking long-distance phone calls from his Miami hotel room that were charged to his credit card. In the end, it would lead to an incredibly intensified tailing operation related to Roselli. And this was more than he had bargained for in the aftermath of the failed attempt. And so he called Jim O'Connell and Sheffield Edwards at the CIA, and he asked them to intercede. But this thing had gotten so hot that neither of them were going to stick their neck out and give it to J. Edgar Hoover for Johnny Roselli. <laughs> Roselli would ruminate that it was like the old days in Chicago, where there were rival gangs and no one trusted anybody any farther than they could spit. After all that had transpired, Roselli at that moment actually thought that the government was done with him. But that actually was not the case. They were just regrouping and getting their act together. The Kennedys would form a special group 
In fact, it was known as the Special Group Augmented, and they would begin to develop Operation Mongoose. And less than a year later, a few days after January 1962, Roselli would get a call from Jim O'Connell. They were back in business, and there would be a new date for the reunion of the old team, and they would make it happen in Miami. Details were to come. Roselli was hesitant, but he understood, and if he was still needed, then he was still ready to do it. A few days later, he would be introduced to a new man on the scene. His name was Bill Harvey. It was going to be a new approach. No one had yet been successful in killing Castro. Would this second time around for Roselli be a winner? Well, you're going to have to wait to find out. Stay tuned for the rest of the Roselli story later in the series when we present Operation Mongoose in upcoming episodes. Thank you for listening to episode 149 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.